Welcome to California's Best Teachers Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today we have on the show Allison Sear. She's one of the cohort of teachers that was nominated for California Teacher of the Year for 2021. Allison is an elementary school teacher, and we have a wonderful conversation, including advice for young teachers, thinking about what kind of skills are important, how to deal with parents, and much more. Enjoy my conversation with Allison Sear. So there's been a long-standing debate about uh, whether teachers are made or born. And part of the reason why we have that debate is, is this idea that we can help people become better teachers or uh, grow people into being truly master teachers. Uh, and there's a lot of people that just think that teachers, you know, they're, they're in school. They think, one day I want to be like my teacher and be a teacher myself. But many of us don't enter the profession that way. Um, we enter it through for different reasons at different points in our lifetime. And so there's every range of experience with teachers. And there's some people that, you know, didn't think they would be a great teacher, but fell in love with the profession. And then there's others that always knew. Um, but where are you on that kind of spectrum between are teachers born or made? I think that I'm kind of, I think that ultimately teachers are made. Um, I think I, I once heard this quote, which I think goes perfect with this, that we're not a product of our circumstance, but rather a product of our expectations. And Westmore said that, and it's something that really stuck with me. Um, I believe that if you have great influences of teachers, you might be more prone to go into to that profession, but the same, the opposite is true. Maybe you had some terrible teachers and you're like, I want to be a teacher. So kids don't have to relive that experience, right? Like, so it's kind of a, like a pendulum swing where um, I think that they're made. I think that it's not just born with this greatness because I think great teachers are always looking for more and for um, that, that growth open mindset, right? So there's not, there's not one particular event that happens that makes a teacher who they are. It's a, it's a series of events that gets them to where they are. For sure. And it's interesting the way our system is set up, um, at least in the public schools I'm in, there's a two-year kind of uh, probationary period before you're tenured. Mm -hmm. And if you believe that teachers are made, it would seem like you would want a longer period um, before locking in someone to a profession in some ways. And I understand that there's a whole conversation about job security and all that stuff too. But what I'm, why I'm bringing that up is a lot of principals make, have to make really quick decisions about whether someone is going to be a good teacher or not. And it's so hard to tell with a year or two, you know, cause I mean, in any other kind of job, a year or two is really when you're trying to figure out the job, learn the basics. Um, but we're asking principals to make that decision so fast. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's definitely, um, principals have a really hard job. I mean, they are definitely that middle man. Uh, I have a lot of respect for principals just because they're that 
they don't have that union, they're at will employees, and yet they're the ones that have to be the middleman for the teachers and the district and everybody else in between. Um, I, I, if I look back at my first two years of teaching and what I was like as a teacher, definitely I gave my whole heart, but you know, they say a lot of teachers leave after the first five years because for whatever reason, right? So to have a tenured teacher after two years, I would, I look at myself and I think I'm a decent teacher that the two years in my profession does not make me an expert. Do I have some insight? Absolutely. But I am not an expert. And I think it's one of those things where it can put you into a rut where some people might start playing it safe. Like, oh, I'm tenured. I'm allowed to do what I want. And I'm just going to keep doing the same thing instead of reaching out of their comfort zone and really pushing them. Um, so yeah, I don't I don't know if two years is a is a good mark. I don't know if five years is a good mark. I think it's one of those things where yes, job security is great. It's not what I'm saying. Like I love having that union behind me, but at the same time, I can see how other teachers start to fall into that that rut of that mundane just doing the same thing over and over and, and and are they at their greatest point you know and or if they mess up like do we want those teachers that are are not doing their job just because they're tenured so it's it's a double-edged sword right there it's complicated and no you know every principal is kind of doing the crystal ball thing with these employees and trying to suss out you know like especially you know because i've sat on a few quite a few little teacher interview panels where you get these the stack of resumes and there are all these different variables you can look at you can look at where they went to college you can look at their grades you can look at their experience you can look at all these different things but it's it it seems like it's all i mean there may be some factors that are more important than others but it's really hard to tell which ones are the important ones to look at i mean a teacher at the end of the day is just a person in a classroom with a bunch of other people trying to lead them in a task. And it's, it's hard to look at a resume and measure that out. And so I actually like it when districts do those demo lessons as part of the interview process. I think it really, you can see a person, you know, but at the same time, you know, you don't really get under, you don't, you don't get like that sense of leading a classroom for a few years. Like in those first couple of years, you're just kind of like running from thing to thing, your curriculum, learning your curriculum, and just with, when you think you have it mastered, boom, plot twist, it changes. Yeah. Can you, can you talk a little bit more about your first few years as a teacher and what those were like for you? I still, okay. So I have been with my district for nine years and at my school site for seven. I still feel like there are days where it is my first year teaching, especially now with the pandemic. I think everybody, those beginning teachers, they, they were put on the same ground level running as veteran teachers 20 years i think we all got pushed back to the same position um you know but you start to feel like okay confident i can teach this lesson and then a kid does something or or the principal walks in or another teacher walks in and it's no longer on the lesson plans and you're scrambling like i i if someone would have told me when i was going into education the amount of minute by minute decisions that you make as an educator. I would never have believed them. 
it's exhausting <laughs> to be on your game all the time. I don't know. Do I think I'm better than my first two years? Absolutely. Do I handle situations with a lot more grace and patience? Absolutely. I think that patience uh, definitely increased the patience from year one to year seven <laughs> with kids. And I think in those early years, right, you, you struggle with the kind of the boundaries of what your teaching life looks like. It just is all encompassing those first year, couple years. Uh, when did that kind of point where you felt like you were in the driver's seat and in control start to, to happen for you? Yesterday. <laughs> yeah. No, we're all just running around, right? We're all just running around with a bunch, like a bunch of chickens with their head cut off. Um, I think once I found you juggle with the curriculum and once you realize that the curriculum's going to change and you're going to make mistakes, I think every, when you talk to veteran teachers, a lot of teachers don't talk about how they failed and oh my goodness, if people would just have told me that they fail, it would have been all that stress of trying to, me trying to feel like I had to be perfect with my students would have made things easier. I think easier, more enjoyable, more instead of trying to, I didn't have to be perfect. And that's my first year. I felt like I could do no wrong. Like I felt like I was being watched. I felt like, and I had a really rough class. There's supposed to be another teacher in there. It got changed, right? So the whole dynamics of the class was different. Um, but I think that when I started allowing myself to have some grace was probably about three, four years ago. So about three years into teaching where I was like, you know what, kids, guess what? I mess up. I fail. And then I made it part of my curriculum. I tell them about when I make my mistakes and I, I no longer try to have everything perfect because they need to know that that's not a realistic expectation life is going to happen to us regardless of it's on, if it's on the lesson plan or not you know and you can have this perfectly planned lesson but then a kid walks in and tells you a story and you you're like oh my gosh that's an even better lesson and you and you take and run with it and i think just walking through and telling your students and treating your students like they're human beings and not just right they have a life we have a life and now all of a sudden you have 26 27 30 different lives mixing mm -hmm. and a beautiful thing happens once you realize that you're all human and you're all going to make mistakes and then how do you how do you go from there and that grace and everything yeah i um recently read a book um by a child psychologist named ross green and it's called raising human beings and i thought that was such a even in the title such an important concept that I think a lot of teachers come in, they're fresh out of college, they've seen their college professors, you know, kind of standing on this platform in front of the room and all these kind of captivated eyes or whatever. I mean, that's, that's maybe not true anymore anyway. <laughs> Kids are on their computers playing games during college lectures. But, um, anyway, so they have this kind of idea of these, this teacher on a pedestal talking to a room of captive audience. And then you get in the classroom and you realize you have to kind of sell their attention uh, you know, and you have to, you have to be engaging in a way that will command their attention in some ways. And so going back to this book, Raising Human Beings, the idea is that you're, when you're teaching or raising kids or whatever, you're working with another human 
has their own desires, their own wants, their own weaknesses and strengths. And, you know, it, I think what you're talking about is improvisation, right? Is when we have to change our plans to adapt to the other person in the room, whether it be a child, right? Um, you know, and I think the challenge is, is partly ego, right? We want to come in with this lesson plan that we've formulated perfectly um, in it to work. Um, but I think one helpful lesson that I learned is that the lesson plan is just the, is a template, but, you know, what actually happens in the classroom is learning and it can right. manifest itself in different ways. Can you talk right. a little bit about that? I think that's when, when, you know, like after your second or third year, you start to realize like, what are you really passionate about? Like you just kind of go through the motions. You have to teach the curriculum for math and science and social studies, but what are you passionate about? And then when you find that passion, you know, your why, you know, you kind of find that why you're a teacher, right? So my passion is I teach kids about that they can make a difference in this world, that they are the change. So like my slogan is be the change. And I have a program called 20 for change and it's $20 or 20 minutes to change a life. And I teach my students that I don't care if you're a second grader, I don't care if you're a fifth grader, you are capable of making a difference. So whether that difference begins with you doing your homework assignment, or we're finding somebody in the community that needs our help, that you, you are the change, you are what our future is, and your actions today may seem very little, but over time they add up, and what is that going to lead to? Um, and I think also being vulnerable with our students. I, I mean, I don't know about you, when I was growing up, I had no idea, like my first grade teacher, I didn't know that she went to the store. Like I thought teachers lived on campus, they ate on yeah. campus, they slept on campus, they showered on campus. They didn't have a life outside of school. Like we were their lives. And then I became a teacher and I was like, okay, yes, my students are my life. And I spend way, it might, I might get more sleep if I stayed at school, but, um, you know, teaching them that, that vulnerability also of, of opening up. And like I said, it goes back to that. What did you struggle with? And and teaching them that it's okay to struggle and um, but that that opens the door for learning about your students and, and creating that safe space. Yeah, I think, you know, when you start seeing them as human beings, you start thinking about other ways you can communicate with them, for sure. And when you just see them as little, you know, little bots that you're programming or something, that's when you know, when they become kind of objects in some ways, mm -hmm. I think that's where the pro a lot of problems in teaching come from. And I think it is harder. I will say this. It is harder once you uh, move from kind of like a place of you should be doing exactly what I say when I say it to I'm collaborating with you towards this goal of learning this concept. That's so much harder, right? And right. because you have to deal with each and in each individual's different needs and desires. And that's, that's hard. Right. And not only, um, have you ever, well, you're a teacher. What grade do you teach? I teach eighth grade. Eighth grade. Okay. So I've taught, um, second, my best friends teach kindergarten, right? I've taught second, third, fourth, and fifth. And the conversations, sometimes I just sit at my desk and I just listen to what they're even talking about and where they go they are so much more interesting sometimes than adults and they're 
concept of the world and and what they believe and why they believe it there's you know they're third graders with opinions and whether those opinions are valid or not they feed off of what they're seeing so then you start to create this classroom of i'm going to let you have your opinion and i'm going to present to you another opinion or both sides right because every story has there's your side my side and then the truth and i'm going to present to you all these different options for you to really form what your opinion is and that's that's difficult with third graders because you don't know what's above their head or what's below but you what i try to do in my classroom is create a safe space so that if they have questions or they're not afraid to ask what what maybe they would be afraid to ask at home like why is this happening well let's look at this why why do you think it's happening what's your perspective of this because their parents watch the news yeah they yeah. see what's going on in school they know when a teacher's mad at another teacher they pick up on everything all of a sudden you have all these little itty bitty eyes watching you and it's not i think when i first got into teaching um god bless that first class of mine they definitely gave me a run for my money but i definitely learned a lot from them and that questioning something isn't bad and i think people think that questioning is the bad quality when it's not when they're just curious there's a difference between being curious and being a little punk <laughs> right? right like so they're they're a bunch of curious minds and and what they come up with and what they formulate is it's definitely interesting so i um i teach older kids um than you do and at a certain point uh, parents kind of release the reins um and a lot of them do it in middle school we see it uh, kind of in that transition between seventh and eighth grade year where we see, you know, seventh grade parents are still, you know, it's their first year in a new school environment. So they're still wanting to be involved, but in eighth grade, they kind of release the minnows to run. And, um, but in elementary school, parents are very involved um, and in many places over-involved and are very concerned. Um, what do you wish parents came, uh, came into uh, having kids in school, which, what do you wish they knew, I guess, is what I'm saying. Because, uh, so, you know, in terms of what what level of involvement is helpful and then what level of involvement is hindering uh, for their children. You know, I mean, I know that lots of people are just, they're worried about their kids and they want them to be successful. They hear about some kid being mean at school and they want to get involved and prevent it. They don't feel like they're, they feel like their kid's falling behind, so they want to figure out why that is and try to avoid uh, any sense of suffering. Um, but then there's also this, you know, discourse of like, we need kids to fail. Right. And, you know, they're not going to learn unless yep. they have that experience. And so it seems like a really complicated, uh, and when I talk to elementary teachers in our district, they talk about how complicated it is working with parents and trying to message to them. Cause in many ways they're both uh, teaching kids, but also teaching parents, how to be involved with kids in school, you know, and so it's, it's hard. So what's your perspective on uh, dealing with parents? So where I teach, we actually are, I'm very fortunate in the majority 
of the parents. Trust the teacher. Um, what the teacher says goes. It's just that type of community where they have a lot of respect for the teacher. So I'm very lucky in that sense. Um, but then it's a double-edged sword where they trust the teachers. So you have your parents that are too hands-on and then you have your parents that are too hands-off and you need that somewhat in the middle. Um, I tell my parents all the time that I, I'm a teacher that teaches on tough love. So I'm, I have very high expectations and if your child is struggling, they're going to struggle but having high expectations doesn't mean that I'm let, going to let them do it alone. And here are some things. And really, struggling isn't bad. And I think as a society, again, it, it's your perspective on, on is struggling a bad thing or is struggling a good thing. And if we never let a kid struggle, then do they really learn the lessons that they're supposed to learn? Whereas if a kid always gets a hundred percent are they really truly learning whereas i have kids that they don't speak any english and they fail every test and then all of a sudden they start getting one or two words right on that spelling test well yes it's still failing but they're making improvement so is a grade really a measure on if a kid is uh, failing or passing, or do they really know their stuff? Um, as far as parents go, because then that's really hard because then you can't tell a parent how to parent. Just like then you don't want a teacher, a, a parent telling you how to teach. Um, so I think the first thing that I do with my parents is that I build a relationship. I trust you. I want you to trust me, and let's work together on on this so what are your concerns okay these are my concerns and then let me know what you see at home because sometimes it's a matter of maybe the kid acts different at home versus at school not that any child ever acts any different when they're with their parents or when they're at school right but i think it never that never happens um i always like when they say oh they're such an angel at at school and at home they're totally opposite I think it's, it is very difficult because you can't tell a parent how to parent. You can't tell a parent that that's wrong or that that's right because that's maybe that's how they grew up. Um, so it's meeting them. It's, it's loving your parents just as much as loving your kids as where they're at. And to see that capability of um, like this is a safety net of your kid might fail, but we're not going to let them totally fail. Yeah. We're going to provide yeah. you the tools that you need. For sure. Um, and, yeah, and it's it's complicated, right? Because, you, I mean, especially if you're, it's your first child in school or something and you're kind of figuring it out, like how much space to give them and how much to trust them to do things in their own versus having your help. Um, and then obviously, you know, if parents could see 15 years down the line, and I've taught everything from sixth grade to 12th grade. So I've seen it. Uh, if you get a kid to 12th grade, that's never been allowed to fail um, or struggle, you, you get some real uh, interesting human beings at that point. And they go away to college and it's a nightmare for them because suddenly there's no net. And that's mm -hmm. how you get those parents that, I don't know if you heard about this, but I, um, 
I don't know if it was on NPR or something, but there was, there's this uh, movement. Um, uh, well, they've seen this phenomenon of parents that actually move to the town where their kids are going to college so they could be close by just in case they need them. And, you know, it seems like a symptom of a larger issue of like, you know, they have child issues, not mommy and daddy issues. It's tough because there is this pressure, but I think a lot of it is parent induced and less, you know, I think the kids, the kids would be fine not doing well on a math test or something, but they feel that, I mean, you know, it's report card time in our district. And so I'm getting a lot of like, Mr. Maddox, have you looked over our missing assignments yet? You know, those kind of emails. And I know where that's coming from. You know, it's coming from their parents checking Aries and then. <laughs> yeah, because they don't really care. <laughs> yeah. So, it's, I mean, you know, it's so it's so complicated. But I, I, I wanted to talk about this because it is something that we talk about a lot, you know, and mm-hmm. it's it's harder, I think, in younger grades to really work on that failure concept because they're so young. In middle and high school, you can kind of, in some right. sense, let them figure it out. But in yes. elementary grades, it's tough. Right. And and um, you were talking about like the helicopter parent and stuff and then the parent that's totally hands off. But you know what? I mean, you're a teacher, you know, there are times when you need as a teacher that one really vocal parent that is going to I mean, how principals feel, how they're in the middle of stuff, we're definitely caught because some parents think that we can just change, the policies just change, we can just make this change when it's it's not as simple as that. So when you get that parent that's maybe overly involved, okay, let's channel your energy and you know what, I can't, I have my hands tied on this issue, but can you use what you know and take it to the next level. Like we're going to back you. Like you have teacher support on this and really finding that balance of I'm going to support you. I need you to support me. And what can I do on my end? And what can you do on your end? And really making that team effort right there. Yeah. I mean, in, in every way, it's like a collaboration and it has to be um, mm-hmm. because we need each other. And, you know, sometimes the lines bleed between parenting and teaching is really, I mean, really all it is, is, is working with kids on, uh, you know, behaviors and mm-hmm. uh, what they, how they prior spend their time, prioritize what they're doing. You know, I mean, those, the lines are gray at best. And so yes. it's, I think, you know, talking about the divisions between home and school can oftentimes be unhelpful because what we want to do is collaborate on the same thing, which is them you know, learning these executive functioning things that are important and they have to cross over the boundaries. Um, So let's talk about technology for a second. Um, So as you know, this year has been a total nightmare with technology. And I, um, I feel very fortunate because I'm teaching older kids Mm -hmm. that there is an element of like, not letting them do it on their own, but an element of like, you can trust that there's some level of, <laughs> I, I don't know, I've just been hearing stories uh, from the elementary teachers about keeping their kids in front of the computer, uh, having parents literally sit through the entire classes with the kids because otherwise they would wander off. So what is what has your bit, year been like with virtual teaching? I know you said you're doing that full time now, but um, what are some of the challenges of it with younger kids and where, where do you think 
technology technology should be after this is over. So my best friend teaches kindergarten and I laugh because all the stories she tells me, like all of a sudden this paper comes in from the side of the screen and it's a perfect outline of an A and their letters are, their penmanship is phenomenal, right? Or like they're doing testing and you have the parent, yeah, you know, in the side telling him, no, that's a B, that's a C, right? Telling them the answers. Um, fortunately enough in third grade, they're pretty independent by them. Um, like I said, I think it goes back to that expectations of like, what do I expect? Um, and knowing that I'm not going to lower my expectations um, because we're virtual. And that's where I think a lot of teachers started to, it's not that any teacher did it wrong, but it was their perspective on what they thought needed to be done. So my perspective was, this is not a learning loss of a year. I can't stand when people say this is a learning loss because our kids are learning. It's different. Absolutely, it is different. But they're not not learning something. So I think I went in with those high expectations of, yep, we're in a classroom. You're here. We're going to have bathroom breaks. We're going to have snack breaks. We're going to have dance breaks. We're going to have reading breaks. We're going to have, you know, this is our school for right now. And we, we actually do this whole lesson on the advancement of technology. And we look at, had this been 17 years ago before Skype was invented? I mean, that was Skype, this is Zoom, this is, you know, but that, that technology, we wouldn't even have the capability to do what we are doing right now. So, you know, is, education is something that it's it's not necessarily promised and how we need to take advantage that we're still trying here um i think for veteran teachers it was hard because all of a sudden their first graders knew how to work those ipads and they had to figure out how to do it i mean and i think our students i look at my students they're really good at following directions share your screen you're gonna go here you're gonna go there so i think some like there's some probably qualities that improved in kids because of this listening. Some of them, their, their listening skills totally improve. They know how to work the technology. They can turn on the computer. They can type. They can. We're not going to need typing in high school anymore after this because every kid oh, wow. will know how to type. <laughs> um, and yes, it's hard. And I think, again, with that grace period, it's, it's hard, but I think we forget as teachers that the beginning of the year is hard anyway. It's a new group of kids. You have to train a whole new group of kids. Now it's online, so it's a little different. But um, I don't know. I think that, that having that expectation that there's still nothing's changed. We're just looking at a computer right now. This is still, this is still third grade. There are still the expectations that you're going to learn the standards and um, I actually probably think I'm probably a better teacher this year because of it. I know my students like the back of my hand. I know their families. I know who did what assignment. I know who didn't do the assignment. I know exactly what score they got. Because right when you're in the classroom, you don't necessarily grade every little thing. And here you're doing it just to see if they're totally understanding. Now, is it hard talking to black screens all day when you can't see if they're laughing when you're making a joke? <laughs> And and we do we do camera checks. Um, now part of that's 
I think the other part of that is, again, having that mutual respect that I'm going to trust that your camera's off, but that you are paying attention and I will call on you. And some of it is the internet connectivity, right? If their camera's off, they, I'm not lagging on their end. Their camera's on. I sound like terrible. I mean, we've all been in those Zoom meetings where you're like, okay, just stop. Just stop talking, sure. right? It's not going through anywhere. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's so funny when kids are like, can I get off the computer now? And some kids are like, I don't even want to play video games. And then you have the ones that are like, oh, can I get off so I can go play a video game? I'm like, you've just been staring at the screen all day. Um, I know some kids were jealous because all of a sudden teachers became YouTubers. <laughs> like we were doing their dream job. Um, but I, I, it's, it's been a learning curve. For sure. It's, it's a challenge, right. In like thinking about after this is over, you know, I mean, I'm getting my second vaccine on Sunday and, uh, you know, just thinking about kind of the period after all of this. Um, and I recently talked with a superintendent of one of the larger uh, counties in, uh, California just kind of about what he imagines technology will look like post pandemic. And um, the one thing that he said is that, you know, obviously we are, are seeing the value of teachers right now. Um, and I think each piece of technology will have to see how it fits uh, within our larger mission of just educating kids. And I think that's a helpful perspective on the technology question because I mean, you know, and this is true for early teachers too, lots of young teachers get in the profession with some new tech things that they learned in their credentialing program that are going to fix education or make it easier or whatever. Um, but oftentimes those things get in the way because you spend more time figuring out how to work the technology than you do like grading someone's math assignment and figuring out, oh, they keep they forget to reverse the inequality sign when they divide by a negative number or whatever. They, right. I, instead of diagnosing uh, what their student needs, they're worried about, uh, is my app working okay? And it's, it's one of those things where it's, it's easy and tempting and the education technology companies are so seductive in how they sell you their stuff because it promises efficiency, it promises time saving, it promises engagement. And at the end of the day, I think ultimately kids are engaged by a professional, respected teacher that knows what they're talking about and has thoughtfully designed lessons. And I think that's what we need to remember personally. Yeah. So I think I, if we went into this pand, if we come out of this pandemic, not having learned anything, then yes, that will be a waste. Not, there are things that need to change. So what it, it's so funny because all of a sudden now they want us to do these SELs, these social emotional lessons. Well, what do you mean? Like, do you not talk to your kids when they come in the classroom? Like, how was your day? What are you doing? Let's talk about this. So for me, that was something like I automatically did with my kids. Let's circle up. Let's have a morning meeting. Let's, how was your day? How was your family? Tell me about your brother. I mean, for gosh sakes, even when they're in the classroom, they come and tell you when it's their cousins, uncles, brothers, grandfather's <laughs> birthday, right? Every yeah. birthday is important to them. Um, so now it's funny because now there's this, all of a sudden there's this shift when it's like, why did we ever shift away from that? Why did we stop caring about the kid, the kid that 
isn't cared about won't learn. So now you, you know, do, yes, standards are important. Standards are important to know where a child falls, not necessarily that they're failing, but there obviously has to be like some bar. Where are they? You can't just never test them. You have to have some type of, it, you know, maybe more informative than grade-based, but um, yeah, I mean, I can definitely see how technology I, will be used when we come out of this. I think certainly some tests will be much easier doing it on the computer. But I also feel very strongly, before we went into this pandemic, I made my students handwrite their essays, and then they had to type their essays because both skills are—it's a different set of skills that they, and then both of them, you have to know how to write. Are we just not? Nobody's going to know how to write when we get done with this, right? Because everything's typing. People know how to write handwritten letters, so. Um, but I think. I think if we take the things that were working before pandemic and some of the things that work post-pandemic and we put them together, it's not reinventing the wheel. We don't need to change everything, but some things do need to change. Yeah, I agree completely. And I, um, you know, it's, teaching is always, uh, you know, adapted to the times and the technology that's available to it because, you know, at the end of the day, it's whatever gets the kids to learn. And, mm -hmm. you know, the reason we have computers in the classroom is they're more effective mean, and you, you have access to a lot more, you know, before you might have to go to the library to get information about everything, which I still do for, for the yeah. record. I still love the library, but in any case, let's, um, let's talk about teacher training. So let's uh, play a, a imaginary game and say, I make you the czar of teacher training in your county or district and you know as you know many districts have kind of induction programs where mm -hmm. the teachers uh, kind of finish their training i guess that they started in their credentialing and then it's their kind of certification of teachers uh, before they become permanent teachers so um what would what would you emphasize in your training program if you were starting from scratch and you think about the things that were helpful for you as a young teacher and the things that developed you professionally, what would you focus on and what do you maybe feel like is unnecessary that we do? Well, I'm just going to say at the front, I did a lot of busy work in my induction program that I would like to do away with because it didn't, it didn't necessarily help me. I mean, it was maybe good documenting experience, but I don't know how much it helped me as a teacher. Um, I really wish that they would have like said, okay, this is how you do an IEP, this is how you do a 504, and this is how you do an SST, because nobody teaches you that in teacher school. Um, but I think, I mean, I had a great mentor um, who allowed when I made a mistake or when I needed help or whatever, she was there for me. But I think that has to be a requirement. I think, I think we have to tell our, our new teachers that that it's this unspoken you're going to want to you're going to want to feel like you want to quit most days i mean that that first year because you want things to be perfect and i i would tell teachers that it's not 
perfect. Like you have to stop. This is not a Pinterest classroom. This is not right. Like all these programs on the computer. Yes, they are amazing. But how do you fit that in to the other 30 things that you have to do? And I think that they're not necessarily told. Yes, we do the busy work a lot of the time. Um, but what I would make sure whatever the work was, is that there was some self-reflection. This is how you executed the, the task. What worked, what didn't work. And it's okay if nothing worked, right? Like, how would you make it better? Okay, let's go back and let's do it again. Um, look at your students. If you have a classroom full of students that absolutely despise doing art, don't do art. It's not with how they're going to learn. I mean, I don't think I've ever had a classroom that everybody despised doing art, right? But doing enough different learning modalities that you're reaching all of your students and that you also have to be interested in it. Because if you're not interested in what you're doing, your kids totally feed off of that. If you get up every day in math and it's like, oh, got to do math again. Man, those numerators and denominators and comparing fractions, I really hate this. And you tell your kids that, guess what? They're, they're going to hate it too. Um, but I think I would have a program that would really talk about helping teachers find what that passion is. Like, what do you enjoy doing? That doesn't mean we don't do the stuff we don't enjoy doing, but really tap into that um, passion and stop trying to fit us into a box. Um, well, lots of things that we do are labeled as professional development, but I'm highly skeptical that they all are. Um, and so what, what have been some good professional developments that you've had that, would, that were worth your time? Um, and I know, you know, that's potentially offending some people, but, you know, we need to be clear about like what, what is good professional development for, for teachers and what isn't. And we do spend a lot of time doing things that someone thinks is going to be good for an entire diverse crowd of teachers on a campus, whereas it might only be good for one or two of the teachers. And maybe we should all have our choice in what we think is going to help us most. Um, so I just did this Google training and it, <laughs> okay, I would put that in my induction program. If we're going to stick with Google and do the different programs and somebody has to sit down and teach these teachers how to do forms, how to do a Word document, how to do an Excel spreadsheet, you know, just like the simple stuff that we probably all just figured out how to do when the pandemic hit because maybe you use Google Drawings, but I had never touched it before and I had to figure out how to assign that assignment to my kids, right? So I would say definitely a Google training. Um, probably one of my favorite um, trainings was when I went to model schools in Washington, DC, and you get to hear all these different speakers. Um, and a lot of it went back to, you have to find your passion, but I think it also talked about how things didn't work. And it goes back to that. You have to tell teachers that it's okay to fail, but they have to get back up. Um, so the Google training model schools was amazing. Um, we did a trauma informed practices where it talked about um, like trauma in children, but in order to understand trauma in children, 
you had to self-reflect on maybe things that happened in your life. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that was great because, again, I think a lot of teachers aren't necessarily transparent and they don't, they don't get vulnerable with their students, which, which is too bad because I think being vulnerable is, I mean, they don't have to know every aspect of your life, but they should know certain things. And you never really know when that true vulnerability is going to like spark. And probably my best example of that. um, So like from this training and really telling us that like, think of your own experiences. How did you overcome stuff? Um, I ended up having vocal cord paralysis last year. And I, if you didn't know, (laughs) you actually have two sets of vocal cords. And so, yes, I just thought I was getting laryngitis every couple of weeks and it was getting to the point where it's just lasting longer and longer. And I lost, um, I essentially sounded like a 90 year old who smoked a bunch of cigarettes and, um, or like the person from Monsters Inc. that says you're late, Zalki. Totally oh, me. Yeah. That's what my voice sounded like. And I couldn't talk more than a whisper. Ended up having to go to speech therapy, which was this whole other. So I'm trying to teach. I sound, I can't, they can't really hear me, but it's not necessarily a medical thing. So I don't need to take time off, right? They just need to pay more attention. Um, and I told my, I got to the point where I, I looked at my kids and I said, I'm going to tell you exactly what is going on. I am in speech therapy. I have to relearn how to use my vocal cords and having the student who was very disruptive, but because of stuff that was happening with his family, right? It wasn't necessarily his fault, shot up in his desk and was like, hey, that's my dad has to go to that because he has um, a brain cancer. And all of a sudden there was like this, this click, like, oh, my teacher has to do it. I know what that's like because my dad has to do it. Maybe I will listen to my teacher, you know, in this, um, but that vulnerability piece probably went off tangent. Sorry. But- no, no, it's, it's a good tangent. Cause I think the best, um, I heard this on some documentary recently about, uh, uh, it was like a basketball coach and he said, uh, rules without relationship equals rebellion. And I think a lot of, you know, a lot of teaching, hap- I mean, to be a good teacher, the first step is really the relationship. Mm-hmm. And kids don't want to have a relationship with someone who's distant and cold. And so it's it's figuring out that kind of what, what kind of vulnerability you want to have. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, there's some teachers that struggle with, you know, wanting to be liked. And that's different, I think, than vulnerability. Um, in a lot of ways, um, vulnerability is just putting something out there, um, and not expecting anything in return necessarily. Yeah. Um, you'll get it, but you don't go in expecting it. I don't think. Exactly. So, um, I do, I don't know, as a first year teacher, one of my friends looked at me, remember no smiling until Christmas. And I was like, what, what do you mean? No smiling. And some people have that mentality of, you can't let the kids see your emotion. It's like, well, that's, that's just not going to work for me. And that's the old school, like the teacher is like the taskmaster. Yes. And it's just, and just, I, I, you know, it's still, for whatever reason, it's still a very dominant worldview in teaching. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was said to me uh, when I started teaching 10 years ago, it was said like, you shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't smile. You shouldn't, 
you know, talk about yourself. You should go laugh at their jokes. You know what? Kids have the funniest jokes, even if they're not, sometimes they're off the wall and they make absolutely no sense. But the fact that they are so excited to tell you that stuff. I mean, again, it goes back to that relationships and yeah, but well, let's, let's close by talking about books. Um, So, you know, I think one of the best ways that teachers kind of stay up with things, uh, stay knowledgeable, stay professionals is by continuing to learn. Um, And so are there some books you'd recommend, um, whether education or psychology or whatever that you think would be helpful to teachers listening? Um, I love reading in general. I love reading to my class. I love reading chapter books. I love reading about how to like better myself and perspective and all that. So um, The Energy Bus by John Gordon is an awesome book because I think it really shows perspective of here's the situation and you, you choose how you shoot. You choose how you show up. And it's all about that attitude and, and what it's not necessarily what's happening to you, but it's how you're reacting to it. Um, the, let's see. Um, Linda Wayman is lead fearlessly, love hard, finding your purpose and putting it to work. And she was a principal um, that was um, one of the most, she taught at a three merger high school and it was considered on Dateline, one of, I think it was Dateline 2020, um, one of the most dangerous schools in America. And she walks you through how all of that happened and finding the relationships and, and finding and being true to who you are and what you believe. Um, obviously the outward mindset, um, seeing beyond ourselves. And, um, I was watching the Sunday morning news program and it was highlighting Stephen Curry's book club, the basketball player. And he has a book club called underrated and the book that they were featuring that month, um, was called The Other Westmore. And it was about two guys um, named Westmore with, um, they had the same name. They threw, they grew up in Baltimore, only a few streets apart and how they were very similar, but how specific choices in the reaction of their families led them down very different paths. Like one was a road scholar and one ended up in prison. And why I say that book is because in that book, it talks about how, whether this is Baltimore or California or wherever you are, there is this true school to prison pipeline, you know, and, and why is there that pipeline and, and what is it about? And what, how important are role models to have? And if you just accuse someone and they get in trouble, but you never explain to them why they are in trouble, then behaviors just keep repeating. That's what they know. But if you pull them aside and you explain why you should, or you shouldn't do something, things will start to change. And maybe not after the first time, but you know, you never really know when that, that division or that yet crossovers and be like, oh, this is why I shouldn't do that. So that itself is, um, and that's where I got that quote that we're not a product of our circumstance, but rather a product of our expectations. Um, just really like 
if I would have been told that seven, eight, nine years ago, I'd been like teaching right there. It's all about yeah. what we expect from our kids. For sure. Yeah. And I, I think we don't need to add more consequences to things that are already consequential for children. You know, like if they fail a math test and they, and you ground them, they've been punished twice for one thing. Yeah. Unquote, right. And I think that there's this mistaken belief out there that like, if you add a secondary human punishment to something that they're already experiencing, that will motivate them more. And <laughs> it does not in any way, but it's, but people believe that. I mean, it's one of the most common misunderstandings about human motivation is mm -hmm. that people need a secondary punishment on top of something that's already been traumatic for them. I mean, I remember, I don't know what grade I was in, but I was pretty young. And um, there was like a big like te math test of some kind. It might've been like learning uh, my math, what are they called? Ma math tables? No. What Your time tables. Time, time tables. tables. That's yeah. what it is. Time tables. And everyone in the class passed, but me or something. And I remember just like the earth shatteringness of that as a kid and like, uh, my parents didn't ground me for not passing my times tables, but like some parents will punish their kids yeah. for having a failure in school. And I think that's just looking at it the wrong way. Um, exactly. It's, it's kind of like having, um, I remember when I first got hired and one of the first questions was, um, what's your discipline policy? <laughs> yes. And as a new teacher, you know, like I was like, I got this. And I, I looked, it's like, sometimes I wish I had, I guess your fearlessness goes in different places as you go along your teaching career, right? Because I looked at them and I said, honestly, it depends on who did what. Because one punishment isn't going to work for every kid. I said, because if my threat is that they do this wrong and I'm going to take away recess, guess what? That one kid that hates recess is going to love that. That's not a punishment. And taking away recess is it, who is that hurting? It's hurting us because mm -hmm. they're not getting their energy out. Exactly. You know, so I don't, I, I'm a firm believer that yes, there has to be, they should be held to that standard. There should be consequences, but the consequences also have to match what's done. Telling a class that they all failed the reading test and so they're staying in to redo it. Well, one, was it really a good reading test? Did I teach them what they should have, you know? Um, not it's that there can't it's be. It's hard, right? Yeah. Because these principals are trying to have some kind of uniform policy. Because if you, if you say that there's, you know, every disciplinary situation is relative, which it is for the record, but <laughs> if you say that out loud, you're opening up Pandora's box for obviously, right. you know, rules are being applied differently, but they should be, um, you know, it's like at our school, we have, um, it's middle school. So we have like a, if kids are misbehaving in class, you, you know, you might send them out or something if they're, and they would go to this kind of center on campus where the bad kids are or whatever I use. I'm using quotation marks with my fingers. Um, but many of those kids that are in there are struggling in the class that they're leaving. And so they're going there to get out of a situation in which they're going to fail at something in front of their classmates. Yeah. Right. And so it's, it's a more complicated game. And I, mm -hmm. you know, I recently 
have interviewed at other places considering moving schools. And I was asked that question, what is your discipline policy? And it's so confusing, right? It's so confusing how you might even answer that question um, because it just completely depends on who it is and depends on your relationship with them too. Like if I've right. got a good relationship with a student, then if they say, do something weird in class, you know, there's probably a, a, a history there that you could, that you're relying on to know how to behave in that moment. Right. One of my students, Joseph, um, he, and I talked with his mom and she's like super excited. He's like that kid that you didn't know that you needed in your life that changed your life, even though he drives you nuts. Um, and he was the class clown and I knew that he got kicked out a lot of the time. And, um, so when he came to my class, I, I looked at him and I was like, Hey buddy, um, whatever you do, you're not getting kicked out. And he was like, huh? <laughs> what do you mean? Like, that's, a, that's, that's the usual MO for someone is, um, they do something wrong. They get kicked out of class. He didn't want to fail. He didn't want to, it because school was hard for him. But there was also this, this underlying thing that he also had a difficult situation. He needs a heart transplant. He has a pacemaker as a second grader, right? Like, so there's these things that are piling up, piling up, piling up. Well, he didn't want to have to face any of that. So getting kicked out was so much easier than just having to sit in class, right? So then when I went to third grade and I brought him with me, he was like, oh my gosh, you got held back. I'm with Miss Sierra again. I was like, nobody, I brought you with me to the next grade. You're still going on, <laughs> you know, but that was really eye-opening because I felt, and I, my first year teaching, I had a kid that his, in fourth grade, he was kicked out all the time. It made me so sad. So yeah. like I wanted to do everything I could to not kick, no matter how bad I wanted to. Just get him out of there. Five minutes. It's, it's very tempting, you know, because it's, it's like you, we all have dreams late at night of quiet classrooms with captivated students, but you know, that's just not your reality most days. And I, I think if I could remove a couple phrases from teachers and administrators' vocabularies, it would be the words lazy, mm -hmm. unmotivated, and bad attitude. Yep. Those words mean nothing. They literally mean nothing, um, but they become blanket descriptors for children and are used to commit terrible crimes against kids all the time. And it's so frustrating because, I mean, it really, if we're talking about who's being lazy there, it's the people that are making those blanket statements about kids. Right, you're exactly. You're not taking the time. You're not taking the time to figure out what the real issue is. It, it's kind of like, um, we used to call, well, we call them pink and blues. I don't know what they call them, but like your, um, it was essentially like a snapshot of what the child did throughout the year. So was your attendance good? Did they turn in their homework? Did the parents attend conferences and any teacher comments? So teachers write on the back of them. And I know a lot of teachers that look at those and that's their, that's their perspective. But I also know that how I am is if a kid has been a pain for someone else, I probably am going to like them because that's just, I tend to get along with those kids because I try to understand where they're coming from. And it's not this blanket statement that they just never did anything. We'll find out why they didn't do anything. 
Yeah. Maybe they didn't like your assignment. <laughs> yeah. There's many, many, many reasons. And I, I personally don't believe that kids don't want to be successful. I've never, I don't feel like I've ever met a kid that didn't want to be successful. I've met a lot of kids that had many things in the way of being successful, mm -hmm. but you know, especially the kids, the kids we're dealing with, you know, you kids younger than 10, me, 13 year olds. I mean, they might look like on the surface that they don't want us to be successful, but all kids want to be liked. All yep. kids want to, you know, same basic well. needs. Yeah. Right. And so I, I think one of the biggest changes I hope comes to education is we move away from those kind of ways of describing kids and ways of thinking about disciplining kids. Cause it really, it just creates like this underclass of children that have outsmarted you because they've manipulated their way out of your room. Mm -hmm. So they don't have to deal with the things that are hard, but yeah, they're starting behind the eight ball before they ever get to the eight ball. Exactly. So anyway, well, thanks for talking to me. I really appreciate Thank you this. so much. It was my pleasure. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you next time. Have a great week.